Hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Digital Guardian Podcast. This is episode 22. Uh, finally recording this podcast. Listeners probably won't be able to truly appreciate this, but uh, this has been in the works for quite some time, several weeks now, and it feels good to finally get together here with everybody. Uh, this week we're joined by Rob Dubois. He's a retired Navy SEAL. He's a speaker. He's a coach. He's an author. He's also the founder and CEO of Impact Actual a personal development firm that I'm sure we're going to learn a little bit more about uh, further on in the podcast. Uh, Will, I want to toss it to you because there's a you know special reason uh, that we're getting together and chatting today. So, yeah, uh, thanks, Chris. You know, I think I think the one of the most interesting things to me about Rob's background is uh, his history and uh, the, his his experiences as part of uh, the, the Navy SEALs. Uh, a lot, I think a lot of people obviously are aware of who the SEALs are, what they do, uh, but at the same time, don't understand uh, some of the things that are most fundamental and important about being a part of the SEAL teams uh, that have nothing to do necessarily with, with uh, pulling a trigger or doing high-speed, low-drag types of operations. Uh, Rob's got ample experience in team building, leadership, uh, character development, and I think those are things that are applicable to our industry as well, uh, whether you're an operational security manager, whether you're a director of security or whether you're a CISO, understanding those attributes and understanding what it takes to be a leader are really uh, paramount to successful completion of any mission. So, Rob, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Jens. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Uh, Rob, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit of your background. You know, uh, Tell us about your story and what led Rob Dubois, you know, going from uh, you know, average, average citizen uh, to Rob Dubois ultimately being uh, the Navy Seaman and ultimately becoming a member of uh, the Navy SEAL teams? Well, I was. Uh, my goal was to be a veterinarian at a high school. So I read James Harriet's stuff, All Creatures Great and Small, and I just thought I was going to be a veterinarian. Later, only a year ago, I guess, I learned he was writing novels, and it t- broke my heart. So there's the first tragedy of my life. But um, that whole story series really turned me on about veterinary service, and I decided to go to Cornell and pre-med and become a veterinarian and smoke a pipe and get old and, and live on a farm somewhere. Uh, that didn't work out because I hated chem and calc and bio. So I failed out of college in the first six months. Wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself after that. Um, had some ideas about becoming a rock star, but didn't get any major contracts as a rock star. So I thought, let me try the military. And I'd, I'd, been, I'd been looking at the, the Marines since I was a kid and admiring them. Uh, so tough, the Leathernecks. You know, I actually read Leatherneck magazine as a kid, so I admired that part. I said, okay, let me be a commando. So I went to three recruiters, Army, Navy, and Marines, and I asked them the single question, who's got the toughest commandos? And I uh, was surprised to hear all three of them say the same thing, the Navy. They all said there was this thing called the Navy SEALs. This is 1985. I didn't even know what a Navy SEAL was, but I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, took some tests and found out I had a very high uh, what's, uh, aptitude for languages on the D-Lab, Defense Language Aptitude Battery. And they said, we'll give you any language you want if you contract to be a linguist for us, a cryptologic technician. I said, okay, but I can still be a SEAL, right? And they said, yeah, sure. Here, sign fast. Uh, I signed a contract. I learned like millions of other people that some recruiters are willing to say anything to get your signature. I went to boot camp and learned I couldn't go to SEALs. So I uh, spent, because of exclusion by my contract for that job specialty, so I left the uh, left my hopes behind for that. <laughs> went off and had an interesting career with NSA for 10 years. Submitted my third package uh, at, at almost 10 years in the Navy to try and go to BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL School. And uh, by this time, the detailer, the guy that made decisions about where who could go where, said, you know what, uh, it was a friend of mine from way back when. He said, you know what, you crazy bastard, you told me 10 years ago you were going to be a SEAL. Uh, it's still stupid because we have the best thing going, but I'll, I'll let you try. We'll get you back anyway. And I went to Bud's. He said, he said I'll get you back anyway because most job specialties, most ratings do get us back right away because almost 90% of the guys fail out. 
but I didn't. Um, I turned 30 in buds. Uh, this is a uh, school, imagine if you will, kind of like along the lines of Olympic training. Uh, athletes of the highest caliber, and it was very, very challenging. But I had some advantage of life experience. You know, I knew I knew that some of this training was a game, and the rest is history. I became a frogman. Uh, I did another ten years in the Navy, focusing uh, instead of the Russian specialty I was on, uh, it became uh, terrorism. And of course, I was alive on 9/11. I was deployed to a uh, country in the middle of the Arabian Gulf teaching Arab SEALs how to kill terrorism, and on 9-11-2001, we watched live as the second plane hit the tower because of the our host satellite TV, and there were 10 of us American SEALs and 10 of the Arab SEALs, and we watched it all together, and that became the foundation for my book, Powerful Peace, and Navy SEALs Lessons on Peace from a Lifetime at War. Yeah, that's an amazing history. I mean, uh, I had to chuckle because, uh, you know, when you're talking about your, your childhood admiration for... Uh, Marine Corps, obviously, you know, being a Marine myself, I, I, uh, I had an uncle who was a drill instructor, and that's how, uh, I think ultimately that's kind of what swayed my decision to go in along with a good friend of mine who became a scout sniper, so uh, we grew up together, so it's funny how you, <laughs> your life takes you down different paths, but everything happens for a reason, so really cool story. As idiot kids, we have no idea what's going on. We just, we get an idea and we say, let's go with this one, because that's what I have in front of me right now, that's what I know in my idiot kid knowledge. <laughs> and then we learn a little bit more and a little bit more through painful experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, uh, and you, hit, you touched on something pretty pretty important too, right? You know, you wanted to challenge yourself. You wanted to make yourself uh, into something more than you had envisioned that you could be. And you wanted to make a difference. <clears throat> so really, you know, I think when you join a team, um, any elite fighting force, you know, and the Marine Corps was considered an elite fighting force. Obviously, we had special forces, SEALs, of course, special forces. Um, you know, I think anytime... In my opinion, based on my experience with those guys, is anytime you make that kind of commitment, you know, you're, you're really trying to test your mettle, and and it's ultimately leading toward a lifetime commitment to of service. What can you what can you tell us a little bit about that, Rob? Well, that's one of the stories, the questions I've been asked most over the past, I guess, 30, 20, 20 plus years since I became a SEAL, and it was why did you do it? You know, why would you go after something like that, which is so challenging, and you have you're almost guaranteed not to pass, not to make it. Well, first of all, let me say, for, as far as not making it, I've been asked by a lot of guys who want to become SEALs, you know, what do I need to know? And I tell them to adopt the attitude I do, that I did when I was in school. I didn't know it up front. I had to learn it through painful experience there. And that was to choose that I'm going to make it or die trying. Because you're not going to die. That's the key. You're not going to die. We, we kill one every five or ten years, you know, if some, some tragic accident happens now. Uh, but a lot of guys are hurt, you know, seriously hurt. There are serious injuries, including drownings. Um, and so they're resuscitated, you know. So we don't we don't die, uh, actually die in buds as a rule. But it is so hard that it helps to set that expectation that I'm going to die or, or I'm going to succeed or die trying. Because that gives the mindset to just drive on no matter what. And the reason that I, I said who's got the toughest commandos was because it was twofold. You know, at that age, I was just a kid, uh, 18, 19 years old, and I, I said that I wanted to, um, I wanted to test myself, just like you said, test your metal. And I also wanted to prepare myself because I had this. I've always had this perception that there's more to life than just taking. So that was one of the few wise things I thought as a young man. There's more to life than just taking. Giving is, you know, it's better to give than to receive, according to the old wisdom. And I sincerely believe that, but in a much bigger concept than just giving out presents with little bows on them. Um, the, as Tony Robbins says, the purpose, uh, the secret to living is giving. And I sincerely believe that. At 50, almost 52, I've learned over the years that the secret to living is giving, that I get so much more by being mindful of what the world needs, what those around me need, what my family needs. And I'm fulfilled by giving. So the whole uh, duality of man, if you will, to, to quote Sergeant uh, Private Joker from um, Full Metal Jacket, the duality of man, I wanted to both test myself at the highest level and to be able to give, to prepare myself to give at the highest level. On the second point, I want to say, 
that this isn't the only way you can give. Uh, there are people who give as brain surgeons. There are people who give as librarians. There are people who give as accountants. And not any one is made for all those things. I believe we're designed uniquely. Each one of us is called to different things. And unfortunately, I see a lot of, a lot of young men, when the concept of military service and Navy service comes up, they seem to almost assume that I and others will assume that they should be SEALs. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's an extremely small community. There's only two or 3,000 SEALs at any one time at all in the Navy. Um, and that's been the way since for 50 years. And we I don't know how many have, have existed. I don't know how many SEALs have ever, have ever been created, but you know, it's around 10,000, you know, in the, in the numbers uh, like that, because there's only there's only a handful of, of guys who are in that category, and we don't need uh, 100,000 SEALs. We don't need a million SEALs. We need a million people doing many things that need to get done to take care of society. Again, giving in your capacity. On the part of challenging, there's a concept I'd like to break out, if you don't mind, called the, you know, the rite of passage to manhood. Uh, not being sexist, there's also a rites of passage to womanhood in the history of our world. A lot of traditional cultures have these rights. We don't tend to in America in the comfortable 21st century. Uh, do you know about the Sundance? Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Right, We chatted about that uh, before. It's, it's similar to that old Sioux tradition, right? I think you had, I can't remember if it was an Ojibwa thing. or a, I know uh, in that movie we talked about uh, A Man Called Horse with Richard Harrison. They kind of portrayed that, right? He was the white dude in that in that in that film. They would, I don't I don't recall how they did it, but as I understand it, the the Sundance is one Native American tradition that takes the boys and makes them men, and uh, and a, a a boy who passes through one of these rites of passage is recognized by the tribe as a full brave in that tradition or full man in the general terms. And the way it's done, imagine uh, tabs and slots when you're trying to put together a, a piece of uh, furniture or paper project for your kid's school. Uh, two slits are made uh, parallel over the pectoral muscles on each side. Uh, under the, in between those two slits is a, is a piece of wood shoved under like a tab under in a slot. And uh, to the two sides of that, that stick, as it's sticking out on both sides, is tied a leather thong. That goes. They tied a 10-foot leather thong that goes to a, a pole, and the the point of the whole issue is to dance up to the pole and run back until the skin tears. When a guy tears through the skin, has those scars on his chest, he's passed. He's become a man. But it takes hours because it hurts like hell just to have it done in the first place, and then it hurts like hell again to <laughs> to do the tearing. So, needless to say, I'm not into like piercing and being. There's suspension. People like to do that now. They like to get stabbed in the back with these big hooks and hang from them. That's not my thing. I'm not looking for pain for pain's sake, but the testing again, crossing that threshold of having having joined uh, the rite of passage, having joined um, the the group, the men or the women, and being a. It's basically a, a, a form of citizenship, if you will, a form of having acknowledged. Hey, I've gone through what you've gone through. We have this common bond. And I saw that we didn't have that in America. I see that there are boys today who are 30, 40, 50 years old. They've been comfortable since birth. They've been provided for since birth. They've had to do very little uh, in the way of making things happen for themselves, self-sufficiency. I really have a strong feeling that ease and comfort are harmful to us when they're the constant state. I love ease and comfort. Don't get me wrong. I love a latte. I love to lie on a green meadow like a big old bull and watch the clouds fly overhead. That's comfortable. But that shouldn't be our whole life because we remain soft, untested, unable, because life is not easy 24-7. Life will come at us. Auto accidents will happen. <clears throat> Losses of family members will happen. Diseases will happen. Power outages will happen. Uh, violent criminals will happen. And if we're not conditioned in some way to hardship, then we're, we're a bunch of victims. And we see that in America today, I think, when, when a catastrophe strikes. In my opinion, way too many able-bodied men are standing around waiting to be rescued by other able-bodied men who are ready. I'd like to change that. That's a noble mission, you know, and I think that, uh, I think you're right. You know, I think that it's a small percentage of the population who goes through uh, the types of trials that, that, that are required to become a Marine or become a SEAL or become a, 
you know, a member of like um, the Rangers, for example, any any of those specialized groups. And I think you are right. It, it, once uh, once you achieve that level, um, you'll always have that level unless you do something of a categorically terrible, you know, level. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, Rob, from your experience, uh, what was it? What was what were the five most important things that you learned um, in your buds training, um, and then subsequently as part of the seals. Uh, that prepared you for for the teams, and then ultimately prepared you for life beyond the teams. And how does that play into the work you're doing with Impact Actual, in addition to all the other work you do um, as a, you know not, as part of your civilian life? Well, last in, first out. Um, as far as what I do in my civilian life, it's limited to Impact Actual now. My personal life is my thing. I love barefoot running. I love being out in the woods. I love. I mean, I ne that's never stopped. My name, Dubois, means of the woods in French, so I'm kind of like Rob of the woods, just like George is of the jungle, uh, and I'm in it as much as possible. These these are my personal things, what I love to do, and, and I, I, I hang with very, very, very small set of friends. I'm not a big social guy as far as hanging out and being, you know, being at, the week, at the club every weekend. That does not do it for me. In fact, it drains me. I'm probably the world's biggest introvert, even though I'm public a lot, doing public speaking, doing public uh, seminars and engagements and workshops. So as far as my professional world is concerned, it's all impact. My team, again, a small focus team. We're kind of like commandos, even though I'm the only SEAL on the team. Uh, my social advisor, my business advisor, our production design people are just phenomenal. I cannot say enough about them. I literally, you know, I've learned lessons in just the past few months that I never learned in decades of military and team life. Because I use the analogy of leadership as Colin Powell explains it. He said, if you think you're a leader and you look back and nobody's following you, you're not a leader. Uh, because, I mean, the guy knew a couple of things about it, right? The high-level general, the secretary of state. And I see the same thing happening now with Impact Actual. The drive for this mission, Impact Actual, and our high-impact mindset, controls... Uh, the environment around me. It's not me doing it personally. It's just that the, the the vision, the passion for changing the world through people one person at a time is inspiring great people to be gathered to the mission. So we're forming organically. And we're focusing in initially on high-impact life coaching. That is the singular thing our, that our goal is driven by right now because we certify life coaches. And it sounds, even to me, it sounds trite. Oh, life coaching, yeah, yeah, rah, rah, whatever, everybody feels good, everybody gets a pat on the back, everybody gets a trophy. But that's nothing like what we're talking about here. What we deal with is transformation of individuals at the human level. We're doing team coaching, we're doing executive coaching, and certifying people, like I said, into our federation of the high-impact life coaches. That is something that has so much power because today it's been accepted that private citizens gain from being coached. Again, there's like 10,000 coaches out there saying, I'm a coach, you should listen to me, but there's a lot of schmucks too. Um, it is not all, a, in some cases, people are out there trying to make a buck because they see easy money. Make a phone call once a week for an hour and get paid. So Rob, this is like Olympic athletes, like I said earlier. No, no Olympic athlete exists in isolation from a coach. True enough. So Rob, by, by, you're sort of, it's interesting because you've got a really, obviously a very unique, bent on life coaching, and you're right, it doesn't sound like it's pablum-driven, you know, or feel-good psychology, uh, which I really don't have a lot of use for. <laughs> you're kind of like the American Ben Bear Grylls, too, right, who was the British SAS guy, right, or SBS guy, I forget which, you know, and it, you know, <laughs> you're also survival stuff, yes. Yeah, but you're also doing something that I think is uh, ultimately more important, you know, societally speaking, right, and the, the, the net effect of that is, is greater. So, um, you know, what can you, you know, when you were in the teams, right, what was the most important thing you learned about yourself and your and your, your teammates and, and your adversaries? Um, and how do you use those lessons when you're coaching people who may not have, have never shared the experiences of the guys like you and I have with having been part of military units or, you know, perhaps had been a part of something like that, but, but have been separated from it for many, many years and kind of uh, that, that old flame is burning, but, it, but, it, but it's smoldering, but it's not burning. How do you either rekindle that in someone or how do you, how do you ignite that in someone for the first time? And what did you? What were those lessons that you that you kind of held on to from your experiences with your teammates and your adversaries over those years with the seals? The most important thing I've learned about myself is that I'm not as important as the mission. The mission, the team, 
they matter more. There's a book called Mission Men and Me by a special forces operator. And he's a, a leader, uh, an officer who led teams in the SF. And he said, the, fo the first focus is the mission. The second focus is my men. The third focus and final and last is me. The same thing applies here in my life. That's what I was talking about earlier. I see that service is far, far more important than self-serving. <clears throat> Unfortunately, in our modern political culture, we're seeing glaring examples of people serving themselves uh, by taking the highest offices and focusing on what's in it for them. I, in my opinion, we've lost statesmanship. And in fact, there may be a few statesmen hanging in there still, but they're leaving because the whole process has been so perverted to say, what can I get? What special interests can I personally gain for myself? Who can I sell myself to for lobbyists or special interests? Service is what our human species needs. If we do have 7 billion people serving themselves, we will collapse into might makes right, Lord of the Flies kind of stuff. The reason we function, especially as an American society, the reason we function is because of that democratic approach to what's, a, what's the best thing for all of us. I've been posting about that recently in my social stuff. <clears throat> the issue of, uh, there's twofold here thing. You talked about the discovering your, well, you didn't say it, but I'll say it, badass, the badassery. Rediscovering your badassery in some cases, discovering it for the first time. And on the side of service, what's the purpose of it? This really goes back to the same thing I said, the, the doof. The dual reasons for my wanting to go to the teams was to test myself, the badassery side, at the highest possible level, and to prepare myself to give, to serve, at the highest possible level. Yeah, very yeah, very good, you know, interesting points. Good observations, I think, too, Rob. Very timely. You know, I think uh, one of the things that you, that, uh, you touched on made me, reminded me of a quote by, uh, <clears throat> you know, one of my uh, favorite historical figures, Scipio Africanus. You're familiar with him? Uh, old old Rome, Roman general, and uh, he had a great quote uh, <clears throat> talking about about human weakness and about uh, the the merit of fortune and chance. And he said that you know I'm mindful of human weakness, and I reflect upon the might of fortune, and know that everything that we do is exposed to a thousand chances. So really, what you're talking about is preparing yourself through refinement, through the testing of one's metal, building yourself up. You, you described it as finding your own inner bad you know badass in order to be ready to meet those thousand chances that Scipio Africanus talked about, you know, more than 2000 years ago. So given all that and given, given the, the message you're trying to bring to the world, what is it about your training and, and the experiences that you've had? And, and uh, what is it that you think executives and that cybersecurity professionals can, can learn uh, from your, uh, from your experiences and your coaching, uh, in addition to just being good human beings, which first and foremost should be our primary mission, right? Um, but but as a disciplinary element and also as a team, uh, you know, as a team member um, character, character or aspect of being a team member and also subsequently being a leader of men or women, what is it that you think you, you're bringing to the market that's unique and different that can aid people in not only becoming better humans, but also being better leaders within the corporate ecosystems, uh, being more ethical, being more moral, and ultimately being of more service and usefulness to their constituents and to their shareholders and their clients and, and all points in between. When I coach on leadership, when I deal with C-suites or individual executives or owners, small business owners, startup leaders, or even InfoSec leaders like you described, I spoke at InfoSec World 2014, I think it was, at Orlando and Disney World. And we had several thousand InfoSec gurus in the room. And my topic there was there's only one elephant. It was to, to wake them up, wake people up that weren't thinking about it yet. Because again, four years ago, um, the idea that you could hack the controls of a Jeep Cherokee and drive it off the road from a computer were just barely really starting to, to get traction. Uh, the only the one elephant thing is a parable uh, from Asia. You know, it could be India, it could be China, but. It goes back thousands of years and has been probably told in thousands of ways. But the idea is that uh, six or seven, depending on the storyteller, blind men encounter a an elephant on the road as they're walking together and talking about very wise things. 
and they all touch the elephant at different points. One touches the trunk and thinks it's like a like a python. Another touches the ear and says it's like a big banana leaf. Another touches the flank and says an elephant is like a wall. Each one of them is telling the whole truth as far as he knows it. Again, back to our political mess. Uh, but he's not wise enough to understand there's more to it than he sees with his hand. That was the concept there, that the virtual and the physical threat worlds are the same now. Everything is combined uh, in the, in the uh, Internet of Things, of course. When my refrigerator can tell people who I'm talking to and, and, and show video of me, uh, then that's probably a point we need to realize that everything is connected. And, of course, I've been red teaming. We didn't talk about that yet, but the combination of the hybridization of my intelligence expertise for 10 years with the, with the NSA and the 10 years of operations and tactical work and intelligence with the SEAL teams uh, made me a pretty good uh, candidate for red teaming. So I went and did that for a few years with the government, becoming a terrorist, basically, becoming a person that would attack U.S. interests, be able to see through the terrorist's eyes, think in his mind, find out what he's looking for, find the gaps. This is a key part, attacking the gaps. Finding the gaps in a, in a U.S. base, whether it's Fallujah or um, Abu Ghraib or somewhere in Akron, uh, you have to understand what he does. We, we have these assessments called the criticality assessment and the threat assessment. So understand by threat who he is, what he's looking for, what he wants to hurt, and why, and understand the critical assets you hold. That's the other side of it. Like what do we need to protect our bowling alley, our nuclear silos, our communications building? Then whenever you see the threat that exists, a realistic threat, and I still do that now with a, with a client out of uh, D.C., that when the threat can reach the critical assets, that's a vulnerability. And that's where we mitigate, because that's the gap. So I would find gaps on 66 bases around the world during those years I did it. Eventually, I became the, the red team leader for the U.S., for the DOD itself, uh, led the operations for the DOD's red team. And basically was like a chief terrorist of the U.S., having a bunch of cells doing things, uh, going after U.S. interests, looking for the gaps, finding them, and helping to mitigate them for the commanders. Again, I do the same thing for commercial interests and other government interests now. And I do this. This is a transferable skill, if you will, one of the most unusual ones ever. We talk about that in leaving the military. Okay, what are you, a, a good mechanic? All right, how do you become a mechanic for the civil sector? How do you work at uh, Jiffy Lube, for example? Transferable skill of red teaming has, has led to impact actual and all of what we're doing with high impact life coaching because I take, I'm teaching my team and I do it with my clients to attack the gaps. Focusing, as we did in Powerful Peace, the book, on body, mind, heart, and soul, the whole person concept. And that comes full circle to your question about what do I do when I'm talking to an executive? How do I help them understand that service is first? And it comes down to mission, men, and me, like the title of that other book. It comes down to what is the whole purpose of this thing. A lot of CEOs could be forgiven for thinking that because people bring them coffee and croissants in the morning and tell them what their schedule looks like, that they're kind of like a little king. That's a lie. The CEO, the startup business owner, the teacher in a classroom, the principal of, the class, of all the classrooms, is the first servant. That's what the leader does. The leader in a SEAL platoon makes damn sure the bullets guy has his bullets, the intel guy like me has his intel or access to the intel, that the bomb guy has his bombs and the comms guy has his comms. This is the purpose of leadership, and it, it comes again and again, full circle back to service, back to mission, back to focus on what is greater than I am. That's where I serve. That's what, Zig Ziglar, a great uh, success teacher, said, if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get what you want, and that's the higher wisdom. To understand that we're all going to be successful as we as we can possibly stand in whatever field we want to be in, as long as we help enough people with that ability. You know, uh, there are parables too about not hiding your light under a bushel or a bushel basket, or not burying your talents in the sand and waiting for somebody to come claim them. We need to use our lives. We need to give of our lives, and that's what the leaders need to understand. I talk to them, and when I do like a, a workshop and, and break out in a few individuals who are you know, maybe high-level leaders in their company, I will flatline them. I'll put them on a, not killing them, I'll put them on a single line, uh, a single balance, you know, uh, the Masons talk about being on the level. Every person in that group is equal. It's Fred and Barney and Wilma, whoever they're, you know, whoever they are, not Mr. This and Mrs. That. Because I want people to understand that they are, we are serving the greater good, 
when one person is focused on his own development, because you can't give what you ain't got, you know, we can't give to others from a cup that overruns if we're not pouring into ourselves. That's what personal development is all about. That's why people pay me a lot of money, because they want to grow themselves. And they don't want to just grow themselves because they can get more people to bring them coffee and croissants in the morning. They want to grow themselves because they want to be built to the highest level to be able to contribute to the highest level. That's the essence of what leadership is and what the essence of what we're doing with our high-impact training for people and teams and executives is to grow them. Individuals grow, and there's no upper limit. That's the coolest thing about being a human being. We have unlimited potential, and unfortunately, the vast majority today, until we wake them up, just stops. They finish their schooling or their trade development. They get their job, and that's it. They just kind of hang out there for 40 years at 40 hours a week and say, well, I did my job today, I'll go get my beer, I'll watch my TV show, I'll go to sleep, wake up in the morning, repeat. And suddenly you're 30 years older. That is not a way to live. We are uniquely designed, we need to give uniquely and create this constant process of self-development to become the greatest leader we can, to be able to make the biggest difference we can, so that when we kick the bucket at 25 or 75 or 95, that it was a life well lived. Yeah, that you bring up some you bring up some really great points, right? You know, um, it actually as as I as I was yeah, recalling a lot of life lessons that I learned while I was in the Marines, and uh, you know, especially when you start to to, to uh, get some time and grade and time and service behind you, and you start to be charged with the care and well being of, of of other Marines uh, or other servicemen, you know. So I think uh, I think I think you, you touched on some you know that, that sacrifice, right? Uh, that's really important. Um, and you and I have talked about before that, about the importance of leadership, and, and one of the things I, that we, we touched on previously was um, that concept. But it, 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 you know, it's you know kind of found throughout multiple schools of psychology. But you know, the concept of nature versus nurture. And your assertion is that leadership is really a, a, a derivative of nurture, more so, much more so than nature, um, because no one knows from birth how to kind of execute and become a leader. Can you elaborate on that and kind of help our audience understand? Uh, what that means, especially if they find themselves in a position wherein they're called upon to be leaders. Yeah, the nature-nurture thing, as leadership goes, is a fantastic subject because a lot of people want to be called a born leader, a natural-born leader, like a natural-born ball player. And while it's true there are certain characteristics that make a good ball player, dexterity and natural tendency, predisposition for physical conditioning and, and you know limberness and strength and speed, those are great for ball players. Uh, but when it comes to leadership, it's much more about connecting with human beings. I use the analogy, uh, the, the, my favorite example of leadership is somebody who is embarrassed by my referencing him, uh, but I'll do it again because his example is so powerful. This is Brian Losey, who was a couple of years ago, he retired from the Navy as Admiral Brian Losey. And he was our last WARCOM, or was our WARCOM when he retired. So the, the, he was the commander of Naval Special Warfare Command, NAVSPEC WARCOM. That means the top SEAL. The top SEAL in the world uh, was the boss of all the SEALs. And Brian was a, what we call SEAL Team 6 commander when I retired in 2006. He'd been my commander at SDB Team 1 here in Hawaii back before that. And we've become good friends since that. And, you know, not too many people are friends with our commanders during the commander years, but we have a lot of a lot of common vision about where the world needs to go and what 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 is good for the world. Um if you look at Powerful Peace, you'll see his blurb on the front of the book where he describes, you know, who I am uh to give a reference for what why anybody should bother opening up the front cover of the book. Brian uh when I met him as a commander back in the team back in 2001, I guess it was before 9-11, he, maybe 2000, he came aboard and I met him and he met 300 people because the SEAL team, just like the movie, is made up of 300 people. And <clears throat> not, the, not the SEAL movie, but the movie 300. Um, I love that analogy because it is 300 people and it's kind of like the Spartans standing in the gap. But there, there are 300 people at a SEAL team and they, uh, well then as it was designed, and he met everybody. And he, you know, we all had blue t-shirts and black shorts and, and desert boots on. He met 300 people that day, or those days when he arrived, maybe a couple of weeks over a chance to meet everybody and shake hands and talk to anybody for like a minute. Uh, and then I was, a couple of weeks later, I was outside of his office. I hadn't talked to him again since then. I was making copies or something, getting ready for a travel trip, a uh, trip, uh, travel claim. 
And he came out of his office to get a cup of coffee or something. He looked over and saw me. He said, hey, Rob, how's it going? And I was really shocked because I I thought that was a hell of a trick. You know, this dude just met 300 people that look kind of like me, wearing the same exact uniform, no title, no rank, no name, on the on a blue T-shirt and black shorts. But he recognized me and used my name. And I thought, well, that's a pretty good trick. He must have got that trick at, at captain school or something, you know, or how to win friends and influence people. He learned it as a trick, like how do you learn the names of 300 people so that they'll think you give a damn about them later on when you use their names. So I thought, you know, that's really impressive. That's a hell of a trick. All this processing went through my head in about a minute or a second and a half, and my response was, uh, great, Captain, how are you doing? And he said, good, and how is Cindy? Because I was married, and my wife was named Cindy, and I could not comprehend how he could remember not only my name out of 300 names with one encounter, but also care about my family. And that was what drove the point home for me that, that great leadership is about great caring. Being, you know, we talked about the, the leader is the first servant. This person sacrifices to make sure the people, the men and women in that person's uh, team, whatever it may be. The, again, I spoke at the uh, North Carolina Perinatal Neonatal Quality Collaborative uh, a couple of years ago did a, to, to a bunch of neonatal providers, people that deal with preemies. And in their world, uh, this, this national con- this annual conference, uh, in their world, if they don't wash their hands, babies can die. And I used that direct connection. I said, your job is no different from mine. Life is on the line, as with the SEAL teams. If you don't pay attention, if you don't have this focus on service, this focus on not my convenience, but the needs of those I serve, then then there's some catastrophic fall, uh, consequences that can come from it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's pretty. It's it's a pretty. Um, when you stop and think about it, <clears throat> not only is it an honor to lead people, but it's a it's an incredibly large responsibility, right? Um, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Right? Uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's all not getting people to bring you coffee. It's not. Yeah. That's what, that's the, that's the completely artificial, two-dimensional concept about leadership. I, you know, being the boss. I mean, Steve Carell did a great job being the a-hole boss. Yeah. He thought he was the world's best boss. He even bought himself a coffee cup that says world's best boss. Yeah. Because he was an idiot. (laughs) And that's what too many people who are nominal leaders are, is idiots. I've served many of them. I mentioned Brian Losey as being the greatest example of great leadership I've ever ever, uh, followed. Uh, And that wasn't just, of course, there was a lot more to it. He leads. You know, when we were at the team, he would lead PT. Imagine Leonidas running in front of the 300 Spartans. That's what we did at the team, and that's what a great leader does. He leads by example. He was the hardest son of a gun there. And he also had a deep uh, compassion for his people, and he also had this great uh, administrative ability. And these are the things we have to develop across the whole spectrum of being a person if we want to lead. But the leadership is service. It's, it's serving others. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things that I remember... Uh, Pretty vividly, um, but as you and I talked about it, you know, I think uh, you know I put myself kind of in that category of someone who rekindled their own flame. Um, is uh, you know the the impregnation of the idea of honor, courage, and commitment when we are when we were becoming Marines before you earned that title, right? The emphasis on those things, and to your point, leading from the, you know that leaders lead from the front, right? Um, and that you know um, no real leader should be afraid. Or demure from doing anything that he would ask his men or his women, you know, people to do, right? That's 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 a mark of a good leader, right? It kind of ties into your your philosophy. We're going to jump a little bit here, though, Rob. Um, for security and cybersecurity practitioners, right, who are tasked with defending assets, we talked about red teaming a bit, not as much as I'd like to, but we should do that again uh, soon. <laughs> but Absolutely. defending assets and environments. Um, uh, and for people who are often involved in um, multi-geotheater operations as part of corporations or maybe maybe global conglomerates, what would you uh, say to them are the most fundamental or the, maybe the five most important things that they can take from your training, your experience, uh, and your guidance and put into practice that will aid them in, uh, aid them in mitigating stress, uh, enhancing their focus, forging their discipline, um, crafting a sounder approach to decision-making, and ultimately speaking, uh, understanding uh, their adversaries. Well, in red teaming, of course, that is the whole point, is understanding the adversary. 
Um, that's the first part. Understand him and then become him. So in my experience in that capacity, again, I've worked, I, I've led uh, not only, you know, killers into uh, scenarios where we would, you know, climb over, under, or through fences and penetrate buildings, but also the techies, uh, subject matter experts in penetration testing and hacking systems and and the things that are that are deeper and darker in terms of uh, the infosec uh, IT world. And fundamentally, everything is connected. Fundamentally, that's how red teaming works. It's asymmetric approaches to find gaps. If I'm a weak terrorist cell and I can't take on the the whatever it is now, 400 million strong U.S. military. Well, I'll find out who I can get. Find out who leaves the back door propped open so they can go out for a smoke in the evening, uh, even though it's supposed to be secured with a badge swipe. I'm going to find out who goes on the base every day and just kind of wanders around so I can tap in and become good friends with them so they can take me on the base and I can get easy access. I'm going to find out whatever I can about the structural integrity of the fence or the vehicle stopping barrier at the gate or the ID cards being checked or not checked at the gate, whether the the sentries are taking their uh, the proper steps. I find out as an adversary in red teaming what the gaps are, what is not being done, either by complacency or by lack of uh, effective policy for security, and I exploit that. The same exact thing is true. Like I say, everything comes full circle. Infosec practitioners, neonatal care practitioners, military, Navy SEAL leaders, uh, CEOs and C-suites and startup people. I write for... Uh, a uh, magazine I want to put in a plug for, Thinkruptor Magazine now. I'm writing a column called Mr. Impact. We've got a couple of them in the can. One's published now on character, which is the foundation of human uh, success. And the second one, Integrity, a little sneak peek, is coming out soon. I think they're going to publish that epi that issue in a couple of weeks. Thinkruptor Magazine. Um, <clears throat> but it all comes back to developing the self for the purpose of becoming better at serving others, which in the flow and the cycle of it comes back to benefit to enrich the individual. We have short-term thinking, of course, going out there. Like we see these quarterly reports. Uh, not too many uh, CEOs today are trying to focus on the, the quarterly reports to make sure they always show a little gain, but they make terrible sacrifices in the short term, uh, for the or in the against the long term for this short-term gain, so they won't get fired. And in fact, the mission fails when the CEO and the C-suite are serving themselves by keeping the numbers up artificially. So what it comes down to is cooperation, which is king. Cooperation is absolutely much more powerful than anybody's individual growth. And I encourage InfoSec people to work with others. I've got a little list. We were talking about this stuff earlier. Uh, deal with the procedural team, the psychological experts, the administrative staff, the criminal experts. Understand all the aspects, or at least who to go to to understand the aspects, to do effective red teaming. Become the whole comprehensive team of the adversary. Become the terrorist cell inclusive, the facilitators, the financiers, the weapons experts, the bomb makers. Understand all they are by grabbing and harnessing the ability that is all around you. We all have that. And I love to use the analogy of the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, he's he's famous for being one of the baddest asses on the planet. Uh, in his in his career, of course, he was famous for it. He was a, a big movie badass, and uh, we always thought of the Terminator or Conan the Barbarian and thought, this guy can really can beat anybody up. And it's true. He could beat up almost anybody that he would have faced one-on-one. -on -one. But if he were faced by 50 motivated fifth-graders, uh, fifth 10-year-old kids, and there were 50 of them, and they had a plan, they could take down the Terminator. They could just swarm him. They have to be willing to take a couple of lumps, of course, along the way. And they might even he might even knock some out. But 50 motivated 10-year-olds could take down the Terminator by swarm, just by climbing on him until he can't bear the mass of it and kicking his legs out and knocking him down and punching him in the head. So if the Terminator can be taken down by 50 motivated 10-year-olds, then it just demonstrates how powerful true cooperation is. We can... By harnessing, and this goes into ha smart power, which is soft and hard power, and some theoretical stuff about, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, international affairs, international relations, international security. Uh, the concept of smart power was saying, hey, attraction and coercion are two equal powers. We can force somebody to comply with our business policies by fear of losing their jobs. 
but that has nothing to do with their motivation when it comes to something, for example, like following, like I said, following the mission of Impact Actual. The, the team that's, that's gravitating toward the concept of the vision of high-impact mindset with what we're doing with Impact Actual, the team that's coming together has nothing to do with me coercing anybody. It's all about the shared vision. That's the smart part. That's the soft attraction to things. We can use coercion like taking away your salary, or we can use persuasion and attraction like saying, this is a great thing. Who wants to be part of it? Absolutely, Rob. Tremendous insight. I, for one, loved the uh, Terminator analogy, and I kind of want to... sounds like it's ripe to show up in a future uh, sequel. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the migrations program. Uh, I stumbled upon that article that uh, you sent along, and it's fascinating stuff. Uh, I was curious how it, you know, kind of trans, uh, transformed you. I am excited about that topic. And for the for the audience, most people do, most folks don't even know what migrations is. If you take the word migrations and change the first I into a Y, the the personal possessive pronoun my, like my book, my coffee. It becomes migrations, and that was the name of a, ser- a series I did with National Geographic, where 20 of us set out to cross two or 300 miles of Serengeti in Tanzania, on foot, unarmed, and even unfed for a good part of it. The purpose was to migrate like a wildebeest herd. The concept was, okay, can 20 humans, with a lot of us being survival experts and primal skills experts or primitive skills experts, can 20 humans cross the Serengeti like a wildebeest herd, and what will be the results of it? Who will, you know, like the wildebeest? Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers for those who haven't seen the series yet. You need to watch it. It's six episodes, National Geographic, uh, and we did. it took six weeks, and we did cross the Serengeti, and we did lose some people along the way. But <clears throat> to your question, it was a phenomenal experience for me, and what really matters to me about my experience there was my own personal transformation. Uh, of course, it was no, I was no stranger to the idea of being a part of a small team in adverse conditions. It was no, I was no stranger to having adverse conditions. In fact, I was empowered by it. I was, I was invigorated by the, adversary, the adver, adversarial or difficult circumstances. We starved, like I said. For a few weeks, we had almost nothing to eat, but we kept chugging along, four, five, six, seven miles a day, chugging along at, you know, in many cases, a snail's pace because we had always had somebody who was injured, always somebody who was unconditioned or something. It was just this or that going on. But we kept chugging along like a wildebeest herd and, and, and succeeded at least in, in doing this crossing. But in the process of those six weeks, I experienced a personal transformation that led to all that you're seeing today. Now, the experience of 30 years is what makes up Impact Actual and the stuff that we've evolved into the concept of high-impact mindset but that isolation was priceless to me. Again, I was, uh, it was easy, uh, to be very blunt, it was very easy to me. The stuff that a lot of people thought was uh, too much to bear, uh, being out there and literally facing down lions, literally, at about 20 or 30 yards, lions were stalking us and they were in a bloodlust and it was only uh, by, by teaming, banding together and being bigger and scarier than the lions that we didn't get attacked. Because, of course, they'll look for the the weak animal, you know, at the edge of the herd. We had to have no weak animals at that moment. It was a pretty exciting moment in sports. But for myself, I had a a situation because I was leaving defense contracting at the time. I had been doing defense contracting for years after I retired from the Navy in 2006. At that event, I mentioned Brian Losey flying up from SEAL Team 6 to to be at my retirement. Um, I thought I was supposed to become a defense contractor because that's what you do. Uh, and from our world, we retire as a SEALs. Okay, we go into defense contracting. It just seems like the natural process in 2006. You know, the war was on. There was lots of contract money for, for counterterrorism. So I went and did it. I did that for a couple of years. I became a program manager. And then I was heading for higher levels, uh, executive stuff. I was being groomed with one big name that everybody would recognize if I said it, but I won't. A uh, huge defense contractor for you know working toward executive. I was being groomed by a, a VP himself, and I thought I was going to die from it. It had this, I had this catastrophic experience basically one day, and it felt like I was dying. I got very sick for a couple of days, 
and I just lay in bed and feeling like I was dying, at least in the soul, and realized that I was way off track. And back to Stephen Covey, he said, be careful about climbing the ladder of success only to find that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And that is what I teach people today. I say, you are on a path. I've had, I can't tell you how many clients I've worked with, and especially people that have converted now and are, are, are inside of our high-impact life coaching team. There are federated coaches in my team who have come from government, from academia, from commercial world, and they said, I've got an F-15, two F-15, F-15 pilots uh, who've come over to uh, high-impact life coaching because they said, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to change lives, not just do what everybody expected me to do because I was military or academic or commercial. And so I found my path in Tanzania, which was to literally just follow my own uh, drumbeat, the one that had been calling to me for 50 years almost, and I began to do what I felt called to do as compared to what I felt the process was I was supposed to follow through expectations, and I have become a completely different person. I used to, I liken it to being a zoo lion. You know, I was, a, I was the top of the badasses as a, as a retired, or as an active Navy SEAL. But when I retired and went to the, the commercial world and began drinking coffee and sitting under fluorescent lights eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day, I became a fat, old, weak zoo lion. I forgot my wild roots. I forgot that I was a wild lion and a very dangerous animal. And by going back to Africa and facing those, those animals that were like me, who I was supposed to be, I remembered that. I, it, it reawakened me, and I, I rejected, the, uh, rejected that horrible, horrible path that... It isn't bad for everybody to be a program manager. It isn't, it isn't bad for everybody. Like I said, we're all made differently. But for myself, it was a living death to be a program manager heading for VP. Yeah. Well, Rob, you know, um, as someone very dear to me, my first jiu-jitsu instructor, Carlson Gracie Sr., once said, if you want to be a lion, you must train with lions. And with yeah. that, I want to go ahead and say thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to having many more talks with you about what you're doing with Impact Actual and just on life in general, and uh, thank you so much. Uh, Rob, where can people find out more information about you and about Impact Actual? Everything is at impactactual.com. Our whole high-impact life coaching, our online programs, our executive and team building, all of it can be found right there at impactactual.com. Thanks again so much for being on. Uh, a real pleasure. Chris, uh, parting words, sir? Rob, it was great to be uh, just to hear everything, hear your story. Uh, I, I believe we can look for uh, uh, Impact Actual podcast from you soon. Correct? As a matter of fact, yes. I mentioned my team of rock stars. Well, one of the team of rock stars has just uh, provided an amazing microphone. We're going all the way on this thing, so <laughs> I will stand by because uh, uh, with the High Impact podcast is about to be launched. We look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Jess. This was a great talk. This is episode 22. Thank you again, Rob, and uh, we'll catch you guys later. 